This podcast contains adult language and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Hey, cadaver dogs. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. We're not doing that. Stop it with that. I want a nick. I want a fan base nickname again. If anybody has any, other I know, ideas. but you keep forcing this one. <laughs> just stop it. Well, just wait until I start asking for fan mail. You know, drawings and things. Then, it, then it's really gonna get kicked up a notch. Yeah. Well, at least my angels have won the last like four games. Uh, yeah, they're they did quite all right. I mean, by the time this thing's released, they'll probably be ten games back and even further than they are. But hey, they won last yeah, night, right. and so we'll see. Yeah, and guess who hit a home run? Jack Mayfield. Congratulations, uh, yeah. Captain Jack. Always coming through. Yeah. Oh, now you're on the Jack Mayfield train. Well, now when I was talking about how awesome he was, you were like, nah. I mean, I think he's doing fine, but, you know, it's he's no Anthony Rendon. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Till next season. All right. All right. This is one of my favorite cases, so let's get on with it. Yeah, we do need to get to the case tonight because there is a lot of information, and I don't know how we're going to fit this in one podcast, but we're going to do our best. Hey, if we have an episode two, come and see us then as well. But no, this really is one of my favorite cases and it always has been uh, since college. I remember I read a book on it called The Devil's Knot and it details kind of what happened in this case. And it honestly, it reads like a fiction novel when you read it in story form, but it it really not. It's not. It's nonfiction and it's absolutely bananas. It is. And probably one of the reasons why it's your favorite case, too, is because there's it's endless. Like there's no ending to it. You could just research it forever and not know everything about this case. Oh, it's absolutely true. I mean, this case, as we'll get to know, had tons of big celebrities, big fanfare that was involved with it. And some of those celebrities even said, like, I really took the time and researched this case. And even after a year of doing so, I still don't feel like I have all the facts straight because there's just so much going on. So we're just going to try to give like an overview and then hopefully everybody else gets obsessed with it and does their own side research for the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, obviously, we're talking about the West Memphis Three, and there's different podcasts to listen to about it. There's different YouTube videos. There's documentaries. There's books. There's all sorts of media coverage for this because it's so interesting. So it takes place in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1993, which this is like a little side note real quick, but I've always thought like, oh, it's not related to Memphis at all. Like it's a different city in Arkansas. Do you know it's like right by the real Memphis? That's why it's called West Memphis. Like Memphis, Tennessee? Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't know it was that close. Yeah, it's like right west of it across the border. Well, you know what's funny about that? I just went to Louisiana, and there's a city called Monroe, Louisiana, and the city next to it's called West Monroe, Louisiana. Yeah. They, call, they call them the Twin Cities. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing here. <laughs> well, dude, you can't expect them to come up with two names. I guess not. Let me tell you about Bristol, Tennessee, by the way, because there's Bristol, Tennessee and there's Bristol, Kentucky, and they share the same road. And I went to a a NASCAR race in Bristol, Tennessee and realized we were in Bristol, Kentucky. And the friend I was with who was driving, (laughs) let him have it. And then to find him in the gas station, like, how far are we? They're like, oh, it's just across the street. It was literally on the other side of the street was Bristol, Tennessee. <laughs> it's so Stupid. dumb. They couldn't think of anything better. Stupid. Right? So anyway, I just thought that was interesting because for years I've always just assumed it was a town with a name 
in a different state. Like it didn't have anything to do. I didn't realize that it was so close to the real Memphis. No, I didn't either. That's news to me as well. So thank you for that. I've already learned something. But you would think that it was on a different planet based on how the things that go on in this town and the people that live there. And it was pretty much the town from Dirty Dancing. Like everybody's super conservative, super religious, but behind closed doors, they're all like drinking and doing drugs and beating their kids and their wives. So it's kind of interesting. It sounds very lawless land. I like that it's already, already here. So in May of 1993, Tracy Lawrence's song Alibis was number one on the country charts. And we're going to get into some alibis here or lack thereof. So I thought that was kind of interesting. You've always, got a way to fit, you've always got a way to fit in the, what's top in the country charts in that year and <laughs> month. But, I don't know why that's always like the first thing I look up. I'm like, what was on the radio? Like when this guy was cruising around trying to kill people, what was he listening to? I always want to know that. That's interesting because I've never thought of that. So that's awesome. Oh, but this case, about it you time. know, it's one of my favorite because there's so many twists and turns. <clears throat> Excuse me. I feel like we always talk about the twists and turns of the case, but that's why we're covering them. And this one, you know, involves three young kids who died and three young boys who were accused of doing it. And there was trials and convictions. There's been releases. There's DNA evidence. There's eyewitness statements. There are eyewitness statements recanting, you know, and there's just all sorts of weird things that happen here. And it's all rolled up into one case. And it's still so mysterious that that's what, that's what draws me in is that there's still so much to go. Well, and like you said, it's so crazy. It's like it's like a work of fiction. You feel like you're watching a movie and these are characters, but they're not. They're real people. And when you do watch a movie on it, you do feel like, oh, my gosh, this could never really happen until you actually stop and go. This is a documentary. It's not so much a movie. I know. So what we do know is that Stevie Branch, Michael Moore and Chris Byers were eight years old. They were all second graders at Weaver Elementary School. And they were in the Boy Scouts together and they were hanging out after school, riding their bikes and skateboards and just kind of running amok around the streets of their neighborhood. Yeah. And boys do, at least at that time. Yeah, it was pretty normal. And the stories have changed a lot over the years, depending on where you get your info. But they all had certain times. I'm sure they were supposed to be home for dinner and, you know, different things. And none of them showed up. Which is not good. So initially, their parents probably thought they were just losing track of time and whatever. But as it got later, it was obvious that something was really wrong. And it was Chris Byers' adoptive father, John Mark Byers, who initially reported the boys missing. And I've heard everywhere from 7 p.m. to 8.30, so... Somewhere in the evening, he reported them missing. Yeah, I've heard that too. It's kind of all about the air. And as you get to know Mark Byers a little bit more, you understand... He's an interesting character by himself. So oh, with yeah. what he says, you really you'll learn you don't know if you can trust it or not. But immediately Chris's parents and the neighbors, they start taking off. They go out through and start looking for these kids. They've reported them missing, but the authorities kind of waited until the next morning around eight AM to really start their search. So it it started off as a community effort to find these three little boys. And Dana Moore, Michael's mom, would call the police next sometime around 9.30. And her version is that the boys were out and about and she'd been kind of keeping an eye on them. And then it had been a little while since she had seen them. So she sent her daughter Dawn to go look for them. And when Dawn couldn't find them, she called and reported them missing. And this is disputed later on by Dawn in an interview that I listened to 
on another podcast, actually. And she says as an adult now, she says that her parents weren't even home that night. So I'm not sure why there's a difference there and what that's all about. I don't even know the significance of that lie, if it's well, a lie. I mean, maybe she maybe the mom wasn't keeping as much of an eye on them as she you know says that she yeah. was and didn't want to get in trouble. Like right. we said in the beginning, like this was kind of a seedy area. So maybe she was doing something she shouldn't have been doing, you know, a la drinking drugs, something else. Yeah. And that's why she lied. But maybe there was a third call that came in. It came from Pamela Hobbs, who if you think she's hot now. You should have seen her a few years ago, who was Stevie Branch's mother. What was that? <laughs> that was from The Office. <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to get it because <laughs> Michael goes, this is Pam, the receptionist. Oh, if you think she's hot now, you should have seen her a few years ago. <laughs> oh, I was like, what are you talking about? That I was, was like, more, if you. Yeah, that was more for you. But <laughs> I was seeing if oh, I, could... I get it. I just I thought for some reason I thought you were talking about this actual Pamela Hobbs. I was like, <laughs> what? she doesn't seem like your type, but OK. <laughs> should I? Should no. I... Anyway, you're. Should I do that again? And th- but say it no. more. No, we're leaving that in. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> Pamela Hobbs is Stevie Branch's mother, and when her husband and four-year-old daughter came to pick her up from work, Stevie wasn't with them, and that was already a concern for Stevie's mom right away. And when Stevie's dad got out of the car and said, "Hey, Stevie hasn't come home yet," she was immediately worried. And again, the third call would come from her calling the police at the payphone at her work. So by this point, all the parents have reported them missing. The whole neighborhood is out searching. And from all the reports that I've seen, they searched pretty much all night long with no sign of the boys or their bikes, nothing. And that's what I've heard too, is that the community really did search high and low that night trying to find them. And the next morning, that's when a more thorough search of the investigation came in because not just the West Memphis police, but a few different police agencies and then the community all start searching all over West Memphis and this obviously surrounding neighborhoods and areas. But they were really focused on the wooded areas around the area and it was called Robin Hood Hills. And it's close to where the boys were playing. And it was also a really known, well-known place for the kids in the area to go play, even though parents didn't usually want them there. They, they still went there and played anyway. Yeah, because it was deceivingly thick. The woods were like, it so didn't look like that thick of woods, but <laughs> stop it. <laughs> so anyway, this is where the story takes a really sketchy turn and we got to warn you, it's pretty gnarly. So, and we will warn you, unlike the documentary that doesn't warn you. And then you just see dead children. Paradise Lost, if anybody's interested, it is a really good one, but be warned that they do show the dead bodies of these kids and they give no warning to you whatsoever. And it None. is... It is frightening. It's shocking. Yeah, to say the absolute least. To, it's just so yeah. abrasive in your face all of a sudden. Just, oh, that's oh, that's them. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. So around 1.45 in the afternoon, a parole officer who was involved in the search noticed a boy's shoe floating in like a creek, like a muddy creek that leads to a drainage ditch in the Robin Hood Hills forested area where they had been searching. So after they find the shoe, the ditch was searched more thoroughly, meaning an officer literally had to get in this muddy water and just feel around on his hands and knees. Yeah. And that's crazy to me. Uh, I can't even imagine. I'm sure that officer is traumatized. Just to have somebody who would do that is one thing, too. I mean, 
I know. That, that's a hero, honestly, to be able to do that kind it of thing. Is. I couldn't do it. Yeah, me neither. So especially he can't see what he's touching. Exactly. It's very muddy and thick Ugh. and gross. Yeah. So anyways, this is where they ended up finding all three boys' bodies was in this creek bed underwater. They were naked and hogtied, meaning their hands were tied to their feet. They had been tied with their own shoelaces. And it was kind of specific the way they were tied. Like their right hands were tied to their right feet behind their back. And their left hands were tied to their left feet. It was shocking. Yeah. Like really shocking. And it was obviously not an accident at all. It, it was disturbing. It really was. Yeah. So they pulled the boys' bodies out of the water and laid them on the banks, which is kind of a problem for like a crime scene because they didn't call the coroner for hours. So it sped up decomp and it was hard to tell time of death and all of this because they were in the water and then they were out of the water. It was kind of a problem. But at the same time, what else were they going to do? I get it. But I mean, already this, the police are kind of botching the crime scene and, you know, they should know yeah. better. Obviously, it's a smaller department. Maybe they didn't. But yeah, you know, shoddy police work is a lot of times why we don't see success in a lot of these cases. So and that's unfortunate. And sometimes I don't necessarily think that it's on purpose. Like right. sometimes it seems like it's more just they've obviously never dealt with a triple homicide of eight year old boys before. I mean, some things you can give them a little bit of leeway with later in the story. A lot less leeway. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. And I think, too, that maybe that was just a reaction. Maybe as a human being, if you find these kids that you're looking for your first initial reaction without thinking is to pick them up you know i could see that being part of it too but yeah totally their clothes were also found in the creek and some of it was wrapped around sticks and branches and shoved into the bottom part of the muddy creek bed and it seemed intentional like the killer was purposely hiding the clothes in the bottom part of the creek and all of the clothes for the boys were recovered except for two pairs of missing underwear which obviously you know belonged to two of the missing boys yeah and he could have either taken it or they could have just washed down the creek i would imagine yeah it definitely could you know with the creek rushing and stuff and, and i'm sure that could have happened yeah so the cause of death for chris byers was multiple injuries and michael and stevie's cause of death was also multiple injuries but they also had drowning as well meaning they were alive when they were put in the creek but chris chris was not they all had bruises and lacerations all over their bodies. Chris also had a significant injury to his groin. Um, he had been mutilated and castrated and left. The, the Yeah, exactly. Stevie's face had bite marks as well, which we'll learn about later. Yeah, they don't even bring that up right away. We find no. that out years later. Right. So that's kind of interesting, too. But... The police first thought that the boys were raped and it was reported that this was true in the news and on TV, but later it was determined that there was no evidence that they were ever raped. The police probably just thought that because they were naked and there was anal dilation, which happens naturally after death, which obviously they didn't know because they're not doctors. Oh man, it, there is just so much there to take in. Like it's hard to process all of it. Yeah. And the DA who prosecuted the case would later say that Chris Byers was intentionally castrated by the killer or killers. But there's some other evidence that it could have been caused by animal predation, specifically snapping turtles that were in this creek ditch thing. 
Like, what in the fuck, Arkansas? Snapping turtles in a drainage yeah. ditch? <laughs> no kidding. I thought Florida was bad, but I guess we got to look out for Arkansas, too. Like, I got some crazy Jesus. animals just running around down there. Hogs and snapping turtles, yeah. gators. What else do they have? I'm like, snapping turtles? I didn't even know those were real. Oh, snapping turtles are very real. I just didn't know that they were <laughs> running around in Arkansas. Yeah. We need to give a little bit of info on each set of parents, though, before we go too far down these rabbit holes and whatnot. And the family dynamics that kind of continue throughout the story, which ties all of this together. Terry and Pamela Hobbs are Stevie's mom and stepdad. His real dad and Pam divorced when Stevie was just a baby. And he has a younger half-sister named Amanda, and she was four at the time of this as well. And Michael Moore was the youngest child of Todd and Dana Moore. And he had a nine or ten year old sister named Dawn. Whenever you say Michael Moore, I think of the the director, but I don't know who that is. <laughs> it's because he's a very liberal director. Oh, I don't watch movies. I don't watch a lot of them either. But I couldn't name one director, although we will name a director later in this show, but I only because I looked him up. <laughs> Chris Byers' parents are Melissa Defer and Rick Murray, but they divorced when Chris was young as well. His mother, Melissa, married a man named John Mark Byers, who ended up adopting Chris, and he had a 13-year-old stepbrother, and his name was Sean Ryan. And that's kind of a weird thing, too, that, that his stepdad adopted him, because that would have had to have meant that his dad basically was like, yeah, I want nothing to do with this, and gave up his parental rights and, and boned out. Yeah, I'm not sure on that. I didn't do a lot of research on that, but I do know that maybe in Arkansas in 1993, maybe it wasn't like a legal adoption. Maybe it was just like, mm. okay, well, your mom's married to this guy now, so your last name is this. Because we see that a lot in this story, even Damien Eccles. Eccles is not his real last name. That was his stepdad's last name. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of just things that don't add up in these kinds of things. But Yeah, well, there's a lot of broken homes in this story, too. Definitely. Definitely a lot of broken homes. And not that that caused any of this, but it causes a lot of confusion on who's who and what's what and who's related to who. It makes Absolutely. it a little bit jumbled. Absolutely. So we'll try to clear it up as we say it, just for anybody who's not familiar with this case. But these names are important because some of these people are going to be suspected of different things throughout this story. And... With so many people, it's hard to keep track. So yeah, definitely. now that we know most of the main characters, we can kind of get back to the story. Yeah, and after the boys' bodies were found, there was a lot of debate whether or not the creek was where they were killed or if they were killed somewhere else and just dumped there. Yeah, mostly because of the lack of blood. Yeah, there were Luminati tests done in the woods. Luminati. <laughs> oh, is that how you say it? Luminol? Okay, there were Luminol tests. Luminol tests done in the woods, too. But it had rained before they did the test, so who the hell knows? Yeah. I feel like blood would soak into the dirt, too, right? Like, are you going to be able to get an accurate Luminol test in dirt and leaves? And That's a fantastic question, and I don't know that I've ever heard the question asked to know the answer to that. But I would think that you'd be able to get traces of it. I mean, I'm sure the dirt doesn't help things, but... I wouldn't think it just absorbs. Yeah, I, I've just never heard of a luminol test being done outside, I guess. Yeah. But this is where the investigation took a hard left, and the investigating officers decided that the crime had occult overtones and convinced that it was done by some satanic devil worshippers. And this was the early 90s where satanic panic was alive and well, and I think people really 
dove into this and and headed face first into this because remember we're going right through the Bible Belt. People are very conservative. Yeah. People are very much afraid of the devil and think that he's definitely working in this case. Well, and Geraldo Rivera and his idiocy. Yeah, had Geraldo just come Rivera. out with that stupid documentary and caused everybody to go into like a horrible panic that if their kid listened to. ACDC or Metallica, they were going to murder people. It's like, relax. Yeah, Geraldo Rivera. There's a lot of reasons stop. that you shouldn't be listening to ACDC or Metallica, but murdering people is not one of them. <laughs> okay, okay. I I happen to like them, but I can understand, especially in this part of the country where what's going on, that made them stand out in a really negative way. Yeah, but I happen to like them too, so it's fine. <laughs> I just thought that was a funny joke. That was a pretty funny joke. And I, but and you I, were going off about Geraldo Rivera. You couldn't even listen to it. I, sorry, I was getting kind of heated about Geraldo because he Oh, did, I know. I hate that guy. He's an idiot. He he caused so much of this, you know, like in this satanic panic stuff in the United States because of his stupid documentaries. And all of his documentaries seem to be really stupid and <laughs> just screw things up. But And I, ju- I just hate how he like talks to you like, like he knows everything and he knows what's best for you. And he's like, you should be doing that. And it's like, shut up. Who the hell are you? And your stupid mustache. I was going to ask you how you felt about his mustache. So there we go. Erica stands that it is stupid mustache. So yeah. By the way, I am pro mustache normally, but not on that douchebag. <laughs> so and I'm glad that we actually are in agreement on a political figure that we both yeah. hate. Oh, him. yeah. I can't stand Geraldo Rivera. I think he's. Yeah. I don't know anybody who can. Yeah. He's terrible. I don't know why he's still on TV. It's like, what is the deal? I keep seeing him like, why do you keep popping up? I, so I agree with you there. But I know I didn't I didn't think he was like a real journalist, but people like really care what he thinks. And I'm like, this guy sucks. No, he's not. You a know real, that, right? He's not a real journalist. So the local police had their eyes on a suspect from the very beginning. And according to them, a teenage boy named Damien Eccles, who wore black and had long hair and liked Iron Maiden, was obviously the most likely suspect in a triple murder of eight-year-old boys, because that's a thing. They had it out for him even before this, because like we had talked about, he was kind of an outcast in this very conservative Bible Belt town. But it makes sense. Like, if you don't think the way everybody else is thinking... You want to push back and go against the grain as much as possible. So it completely makes sense looking at it now, I guess. But why he did what he did, why he wore what he wore, sometimes why he said what he said. Oh, yeah, because they constantly harassed him, the local cops and everything. And he was an arrogant teenager and he, you know, fought back and was stupid and did dumb stuff like teenagers do. Probably because the cops were rusing him, so why wouldn't he ruse him back, you know? Yeah, especially because he, hadn't, he didn't, wasn't doing anything wrong, so, you know, he could kind of push back a little bit because there was nothing he did wrong. Right. And they also zeroed in a little bit on his best friend, Jason Baldwin. And in the, in some of these documentaries from them, they say it's because they had long hair and wore band t-shirts from Black Sabbath and U2. And U2. I was like, you know what? Maybe these guys did do it if they're listening to YouTube. <laughs> Everybody knows our stance on YouTube, okay? <laughs> what a range, though. Black Sabbath, ACDC, Metallica, and YouTube. Uh, I know. Which of these doesn't belong? So, obviously, everybody knows our stance on YouTube, but that is no reason to accuse somebody of a brutal triple murder. It's on the cusp, but it's not there yet. It's not quite there. <laughs> but this is really why they honed in on Echoes, and they interviewed him often and gave him a polygraph and told him and everyone else that he failed it, even though there's no proof that he did fail it. And who's to say he did or he didn't at this point? 
they even involved a random 32-year-old lady named Vicki Hutchinson who had been arrested on theft and fraud charges right around this time. And she had an eight-year-old son that knew the victims. And she didn't know Damien and Jason, but she casually knew another guy named Jesse Miss Kelly. And she had him introduce her to Damien and Jason. And the police bugged her trailer and she invited them over and recorded all this. And they never said anything incriminating, but she went on to make wild accusations about having a relationship with Damien and him taking her to orgies and cult stuff in the woods and her eight-year-old son was telling wild stories that they were listening to and being interviewed by the cops without parents there and it was really a lot of wild stuff about cults and satan and it was really awkward yeah that whole thing is so strange like why would you get involved like that like i understand her son being eight years old he was the same age as those kids and caring totally get it makes a lot of sense but then like oh yeah i'll invite him over to my house like Lady, you're 32 years old. These are teenagers. <laughs> they have no need yeah. to be at your house for anything, for any reason whatsoever. Well, she'll go on later to admit that this was all a lie, but she did it because the cops let her out of those fraud and theft charges for doing it. But still, like, there was no real connection. So it's a, it's really strange why they would give that to her in exchange for this. But but we'll, we'll get more into her later. <laughs> yeah, she's down the road. But they took a picture of Damien during one of these interrogations and they used that picture and showed it all around town and they would go and ask people put signs up and said do you know this satan worshiping cult leader you know really putting the power of suggestion on people from the jump not even giving anybody a chance to say oh yeah i know him from this or that they just automatically here's a picture and associate him with something that's going to scare them yeah and they kept interviewing Damien over and over and over along with his friends and his associates and people that just were around him and kind of knew him and Damien really honestly didn't help his own case either because he was kind of an arrogant teenager he was kind of a jerk but nothing ever came of these interviews until a month later on June 3rd they interviewed his friend Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. and Jesse had an IQ of 72 which is well below what the normal average would be and he was a minor at the time of his interview but he was questioned anyway without a lawyer present or his parents and that's just again the beginning of where these police take this yeah and when we say an iq of 72 like we're not trying to make fun of him or anything but i've seen things that he didn't even know who bill clinton was oh yeah and you would think someone in arkansas especially in 93 would definitely know who that was he was the president of the united states exactly and he was the governor of Arkansas. Right. He was it's exactly. He was from Arkansas. But yeah, this is very a la Brendan Dassey from, you know, people who, who know making a murderer, Stephen Avery and all that. So it, it has very similar ties to it as well. Like you said, kind of like Brendan Dassey, Miss Kelly Jr. was interrogated for like 12 hours, but less than an hour of it was recorded, which feels on purpose. Yeah, like, it does. Why wouldn't you just record the whole thing? Was it just an oops? Like, is there any explanation of why only an hour was ever recorded? I've never seen anything. Well, I mean, they think it's because they were trying to get his story to match. Oh, I see. Yeah. So after his 12 hours of interrogation, they came away with what the police called a confession. So Miss Kelly confessed to police that on the day the three boys were killed, he witnessed Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin rape and murder them. And he says he didn't participate, but that he helped grab one of the boys when he tried to run. 
even though he's saying the words like I saw Damien and Jason do this and do that and kill these three boys, nothing really lines up. None of the facts are right. And he'll say stuff like it was at noon and then the police are like, no, it was at seven. And he's like, oh, I mean, it was at seven. Like it, none of his facts were right. A la Brendan Dassey. I mean, it just it does. It screams the same exact thing that happened. And anyone who's watched Making a Murderer can watch that and go, Brendan was led clearly by the police. And it sounds exactly like what's happening here as well. Yeah, I feel like he was not giving an honest confession. It wasn't like he just finally broke and told them everything that happened. It felt like they pressured him for long enough and under the right circumstances, somebody with a below average IQ, a young, impressionable person, you know, it was easy for them to finally get what they wanted out of him. Definitely. That's exactly what it sounds like. So there's a lot of stuff with this confession that really just doesn't line up with the facts of the case. So any common sense, reasonable person would look at that and go, okay, he was obviously coerced or forced or led in this confession. Oh, yeah. So anybody can look at it and say, this is probably not very true. Yeah, absolutely. And we could go on and on for hours and multiple different episodes and hire deep dives, you know, about the confession and how it was obtained, but we're not going to. We don't have that kind of time and nobody wants to listen to that if they did. Well, and because in most cases you need more than a confession to convict anybody. And this is why you need a confession plus physical evidence. Right, because people will admit to things that they didn't do or coerced into doing all the time. So without yeah. that evidence to back it up, I mean, yeah, the confession is one piece of it. But if the evidence doesn't match that, it really right. doesn't jive. And everyone has their opinions of the interrogation technique and kind of what happened and how many false confession materialized under certain circumstances. This confession fits all of those for not making any sense. Yeah, it does, really. Like we said, his confession contained so much false information. Almost every fact was wrong, and then it would be corrected by an officer saying, well, wait a second, isn't it this way? And, like, it's bad. Even their final take of what they recorded was not good. Yeah, it's pretty much wrong in every single way, and it's obvious. It's not true. But, you know, it's, it didn't really matter. They needed someone to go down for this, and, and they had to pin it on somebody. It couldn't just be like, oh, well, these young eight-year-old boys. There was a lot of panic in the at that time within the area because there were people on the loose who they thought could just kill their kids. Yeah. Somebody had to go down, and the, the misfits of, of the area were the ones who, you know, took that hit. Yeah, because it had been a month, and the police really had nothing, so. Yeah. That's another part of it, too, is they were panicking. Like, we don't have any leads. We have nothing yeah. on this. We have to do something. Like, we can't just sit back and let three eight-year-old boys die and just throw our hands up in the air and go, well, we don't know. Sorry, guys. Well, so what's really sad about it, though, is that you'll find out later on they had a lot of leads and a lot of suspects. They just chose to only focus on these three teenagers because they wanted them. They wanted it to be them. And they made it so that it was them. Just, you know, yeah. again, like making a murder. And the reason I keep... You know, I go back to that one because I know a lot of people have seen that one, but it fits very, very similarly that somebody who didn't fit the typical everyday mold gets blamed for something because they needed someone to go down for something. Yeah, and they were so cocky with this. The lead investigator gave a press conference after they arrested Jason, Jesse, and Damien for the murders. The media asked him, you know, like, how solid is your case? You know, because you arrested these teenagers. How solid is your case? You know, on a scale of one to ten. And he said 11. Ugh, like, yeah. it's so unprofessional. And Absolutely. just, it's almost sickening to watch the videos. 
the way he says it too, like the like in the interview, the way he just says it is so smug and just so like, hmm, yeah, I'm an eleven. I know that I got this case, and it's like, dude, you don't have any evidence to go with. Yeah, it, but that's when and how the trial started, and obviously from the beginning, it was already a circus. Yeah. And Jesse Miss Kelly tried was tried first and separately from Damien and Jason, and his quote unquote confession was pretty much the only evidence that they had, even though there were expert witnesses saying that he was coerced into saying these, this confession. The judge in this case even ruled that the expert testimony was trying to coerce the jury, <laughs> that the confession <laughs> yeah. was false, and wouldn't allow the expert to answer almost anything. It was a complete and utter shit show because... It was totally a shit show. This community, from top to bottom, again, because the entire community has to have somebody go down for this and you know these misfits fit the yeah. bill and everyone is pushing this in law enforcement in the court system everybody is pushing this agenda it was a legitimate witch hunt and it, during this trial this is when we're going to get back to this Vicky Hutchinson fucking winner yeah she's a, she is a real winner Ugh. this is the 32 year old lady that let the police bug her home and took the stand and lied through her meth mouth teeth and said all this stuff that Miss Kelly confessed to was true. And (laughs) she went pretty far into this testimony and she even let her eight year old son be questioned by the police, like on multiple occasions. It was awful. She was like pretty much the only eyewitness in this case. And she was saying that everything Miss Kelly said in his bogus confession was true. And it's like, what? It's crazy. And it comes out later that she recants this, obviously, but she wanted her five minutes in the sun and she took it. Yeah. And what a way to do it, too, on the back, the heels, whatever you want to say, of some young kids, like, misery. And it's young kids on both sides. The three eight-year-olds are young kids who who obviously went through a terrible, miserable fate. These three kids, these three other kids who are going through it are going through a pretty miserable time in their lives, too, because they're being accused of something that they're saying, hey, we didn't do it. And there's no evidence to back it up. Right. But they're still being pushed forward, too. And that's the one thing I do want to say, too, is that I went into this case thinking that they did do it. I always thought they were guilty, like when I just first heard about this and then after seeing the documentaries and then really researching everything, like I totally... I was like, wait a second. Yes. How did they even arrest yeah, these absolutely. guys? Like, and that's the thing is like, even if you think they did it, even if you think these three teenagers were the ones who did it, they did not get a fair trial and they were not convicted under the rules and the laws in the United States. So either way, this was not right. 100%. But he, he being Jesse Miss Kelly, he was convicted, even though most of the facts of his confession were false and not correct at all there is no other physical evidence or circumstantial evidence to prove any of the three suspects were even there or had anything to do with right so there was nothing to corroborate this confession or this bogus eyewitness statement from this vicky hutchinson asshole so he was convicted and sentenced to life plus 40 years unreal yep then three weeks later damien and jason went on trial and there is no confession in their trial because they've both always said that they're innocent And the prosecution went with the murders being a satanic ritual thing and even called some cult expert to the stand to testify that it was a ritualistic killing, which this guy was a loon bag, too. He had like a mail-in degree from a fake college. Yep. And it was like, and what's your degree in? Witchcraft? Like, what are you talking about? 
Yeah, he makes no sense of any of this. And his his testimony in the stands, like, it's clear that he is also in agreement with, you know, the people in the area. Yeah. Because they have to blame somebody. And again, it's got to be the, the misfits. It's the people who don't matter. But And more importantly, it was clear that even though he was an expert on occult practices, he was no expert. He literally said things yeah. like, well, they paint their nails black and paint their hair black. It's like... That makes you a cult leader? Yeah, it's it's really bad. It's it's very somebody who is completely out of touch with reality and what actually happens and just painting their own agenda for this conviction. Yeah, and Damien and Jason both are not Satanists. They've never claimed to be. Damien was known to research a lot of different religions and be kind of into Wicca at the time, which is nothing like Satan like satanism they're not even close it's true and not that there's anything wrong at all with you know studying other religions and whatnot but when you're living in the bible belt there is a problem with those people and again damien didn't do himself a whole lot of favors living here and you know practicing wicca or wearing black nail polish. it did make him stand out but again it's no reason to convict him over but that was part of it too was right because of his his background because he had the balls to say like no i'm not this or i'm not that and this is what i'm doing right he stood up and yeah. wanted to be himself and not what everybody else was doing but and these boys were teenagers at the time too and so i don't even really know if they could fully grasp how serious all of this was and they thought for sure they would never be convicted of a crime because they didn't do it and this is a huge fear of mine too which is probably why i'm so into this case is these guys didn't do this and to have this jury of you know people say oh yeah you did with nothing to back it that's terrifying it terrifies me to have to go to jail over something i've never done before in just circumstance yeah it should terrify everybody it shouldn't be because if it can happen to three teenage boys it can happen to me or you that's not going to help my anxiety so thank you very much for that but well you're welcome but it's true look at these kids they were convicted with literally no evidence. This trial was tampered with nothing but rumors told by the media, the police, the family of the victims, like John Mark Byers, Chris's dad, telling the media that Chris Byers' genitals were found in a glass jar under Damien's bed with his fingerprints on it. And that wasn't true. They're just out here making stuff up. Yeah, it wasn't true. But once people heard it, they were just like, well, that's fact, because one of the victim's dad said it. Or Michael Carson, which was a former inmate housed with Jason Baldwin, testified in him and Damien's trial that Jason confessed to him that he killed these kids in prison. And this guy was on the stand, high as a kite, looking like a total idiot, talking about shit he had no no idea. And he just lied through his teeth. And he later ended up saying like, oh yeah, my testimony was total bullshit. That's crazy. It's crazy to me that people are willing to lie like this to get like to send other people up the river you know that just makes no sense to me but a kid was sentenced to death because this kid wanted to lie on the stand that's crazy it's crazy that that people will take these things to such an extreme and, and let a teenager get sentenced to death over something just you know yeah because he wanted his five minutes of fame they have this like plausible deniability that like oh it wasn't just my testimony or it wasn't just my you know interpretation of this evidence it's like it could have been. If you didn't testify falsely and lie on the stand, maybe he doesn't get convicted. I absolutely don't know how those people sleep at night. I I don't know how they do either. I mean, doing the research on this, like just more and more 
just boils my blood. <laughs> it does happen quite a bit when I do look into this case to see if there's anything new or just go back and I know, look at it. Because they're but... just like, oh, sorry, I lied. It's like you are literally the only evidence they had. Right. The jury was also not supposed to know any of these rumors that weren't in the trial, including that so-called confession from Miss Kelly Jr., but it was later determined that the jury did discuss the confessions, even though it wasn't in the trial. You know, and of course, with their minds made up before the trial, these two were convicted. Jason was sentenced to life and Damien received the death penalty. And, you know, that's just it's so unfortunate that that kind of stuff is what led to these kids going to prison and getting, you know, for life and obviously a death sentence. Yeah. And when the jury sent their notes in, they even blacked out the part where they talked about Miss Kelly's confession. So they knew that they weren't oh supposed gosh. to know that. They knew. It's so crazy. Yeah, they were. They knew. They knew. Yeah. So obviously these kids didn't receive a fair trial. But either way, they were tried and convicted in the media for looking different, being poor, not having the resources or mental fortitude to understand that not everything works out the way it's supposed to. But if you took rumor and emotion and false eyewitness testimony out of this and just presented the facts, there is literally nothing that links these three teenagers to this crime. No physical evidence. Nothing. Absolutely. But people in this case let their emotions just get so out of whack because it is an emotionally draining case. Of course it is. Eight-year-olds were murdered. Yeah. It's horrifying in every single way. But it's not something still to just throw three other kids up the river because somebody has to go down for it. And sorry, I don't know who it was. Yeah. Anyway, they were sentenced to prison. Their treatment in prison was obviously terrible too because they were convicted child killers. It's surprising that they didn't die in prison. Yeah, well, it wasn't for lack of trying. (laughs) Right, but they appealed their sentences multiple times, but they were held up each time because guess what? It was the same judge. In 2007, Damien Eccles petitioned for a retrial and his reasoning this time was for post-conviction testing of DNA evidence that it didn't exist back in 1994, but it did exist in 2007, and that DNA evidence would prove that these kids were innocent. The original judge, David uh, David Burnett, would not allow presentation of this information in his courtroom. Like, even down the road, it was still these just stacked up against these kids every which way. Yeah. Because they don't want to admit that they were wrong. They were so adamant that these kids did it and they tried and convicted them with no evidence. Now that there's physical evidence, they're like, well, we can't test that shit. Like, it's going to show that we were way off. That's exactly it. That's exactly what it is, is these people don't want their egos to get hurt and say, oh, sorry, we were wrong and sent these kids up shit's creek without a paddle. It's really sad, too. I saw an interview with that judge, and he said that if he had to do it all over again, he wouldn't let cameras in the courtroom, like the documentaries that were in the courtroom. Uh Because you can watch most of this footage, like, even in the Paradise Lost documentary, you can see a lot of it. Yeah. And he said if he could do it all over again, he probably wouldn't allow cameras in the courtroom. And it's like, why? Because you don't want people to see what kind of bullshittery is going on here? Yeah, is that just because you look so bad? It's got to be. It's got to be. I mean, to the point where even after these convictions, all the appeals and everything were the same judge. And he was running for, like, state senate or something or Congress or something. And the people who were really invested in the innocence of these three teenagers, you know, the Free the West Memphis three people. Yeah. They were so 
adamant that they should campaign for him because that was the only way to get him off this case, to get any of this new evidence tested or anything, because he was so set that they did it right and they got the right guys that he just said no to everything. Like, if you were so sure that you got the right guys, why would you say no to DNA testing? Why wouldn't you just be like, yeah, test the shit? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Give me all the evidence. Let me prove that I'm right. Let me show yeah. you. I'm so I'm 11, you know, out of 10 convinced that I'm right. Yeah. But oh, we're not going to use any of that evidence yeah. against me because that wouldn't be helpful. So it's like it got to the point where it was so bad that these people who really think that Damien, Jason and Jesse were innocent, wanted to like campaign for this judge to get this state assembly seat or whatever it was, Senate or Congress or whatever, because then he would be off the case. And right. they could get a new judge, which has ended up what happened later on. But it's insane to think about that you would have to, like, go vote for a guy to get him out of the position that he's in. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that you could get a new judge on the case. Like, that's crazy. That is crazy. Absolutely nuts. But I think that's where we're going to have to end this one and leave you guys with part one. Yeah, we're getting a little long winded. And I'm sure you all need a break before we get into the really bananas parts of this story. And it is getting bananas. I mean, this. The lead up to it is pretty intense already, but the rest of it is just, it's, it doesn't make sense that it's in one full story. Yeah. That's why we have to cut it in part two. So we decided that this was a good spot to leave you guys hanging. And you can we'll now pick it turn up. your cassette tape over for part two. It's stupid. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's 93. Oh, exactly. See? They were flipping over CDs. Oh, no, not CDs yet. They were flipping over cassette tapes and vinyl still. I feel like there were CDs in 93. Oh, was yeah, there probably was. I know there were floppy disks. Yeah. So does BTK. <laughs> 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 Idiot. So, all right. You got anything else? Nope. I got to go check the score of the Angel game since we came in here. It was 2 nothing. See if your boy... Captain Jack Mayfield uh, came through in the clutch again. I'm sure he did. I have total faith. I know. You Although know. I do got to apply yeah. for a job with the Angels because they're paying people a shitload of money to sit on the bench and be fat and lazy, and I'm fat and lazy every day for free. So, <laughs> hey, if you can get one, let me know. Yeah, I'd like to work there too. Yeah. And the score right now is tied three to three. Boom! Roasted. All right, well, we should let these people on the podcast go, and then we'll watch the Angel Game together. Uh, oh, that makes sense. All right. <laughs> well, then we'll talk soon. Okay, love you. All right, love you too. Bye. Bye. Bye.